0: This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. I'll be speaking with some of the most interesting and visionary writers about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art and somehow manage to focus creatively with everything else going on. My name is Gemma Birrell. I've been lucky enough to work with writers for many years from Shakespeare and Company Bookshop in Paris to Sydney Writers Festival and now Tableau. And I've always found that writers have an ability to articulate what we need to hear when we need to hear it. So I hope you'll enjoy these rambling conversations as much as I do. Today I'm speaking with a writer I admire enormously, Anna Funder. As with many readers, I was first introduced to her work with Stasi Land, which I think is one of the best contemporary nonfiction books around, and I've recommended it countless times. It won the Samuel Johnson Prize, was published in 25 countries and translated into 16 languages. It's now a classic, a definitive account of tyranny and resistance, and it seems particularly relevant to be talking about it now since it's 30 years after the Berlin Wall came down. Anna's also written the novel All That I Am that won Australia's most prestigious literary prize, the Miles Franklin Award, and it was an international bestseller. She then wrote a novella. The Girl with the Dogs, that interestingly began as a commission and is also a Rockefeller Foundation fellow and an ambassador for ICORN, the International Cities of Refuge Network. Anna, when did you first know that you wanted to be a writer?
1: Well, right, we're starting right back at the beginning. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Look, um, it sounds sort of ridiculous even to me, but I really knew that I was going to be or that I wanted to be a writer, whether I could be one or not, I didn't know. From about the age of six, it was a little bit like, I mean, I wouldn't say that self-knowledge is particularly my forte, but I really do think that I knew it very, very early on. And um, it's one of the few things I have known about myself, really. I didn't know that I would be able to do it, and I didn't know what I would write, and I didn't know what my life in writing would look like or feel like or be like. I did know that. And in retrospect, I can kind of work out why. I mean, I can be reading back on this, but it has felt like this to me for a long time, sort of even from my adolescence. When we were really small, my dad was a Postdoctoral student in San Francisco, and I lived there with my mum and my two younger brothers, so three small kids. And we then moved after that to Paris, and I started school in Paris as a six-year-old. And my mother was um, interested in – she became a psychologist. She was interested in psychology, and I think that she thought that it would be less anxious-provoking for me if she didn't say anything about the fact that my first day at big school – I wouldn't understand a word that anyone said. So she completely didn't say anything and played it down and just sort of sent me off to school in the the maternelle. And I went to school and, of course, I didn't understand a single word. And I don't remember being worried by that really, but I do remember thinking in some way, right, I could already read and write in English, obviously. And I just remember thinking, okay, so language is not something that just exists. It's a a magic curtain that changes depending on where you are. And in this place, the magic curtain for me to get access to this world is French. It's a whole other thing. I have to learn it. And if you're small, there's no effort in learning a language. So you just, just learned it in six months. I still have, you know, only slightly better than six-year-old French, probably. But um, I think then I became utterly sort of entranced by words and by language and how the way that you expressed something changed the way you thought or felt about it or revealed something to you that you didn't know.
0: And did you find that it also gave you almost a new perspective or a new personality in that different language? Because the world, in a way, as you said, it's a magic curtain. You can see things so differently through that lens. I think
1: it expanded it. It expanded what I felt were the resonances of, say, English words. And it expanded my emotional vocabulary because people say things as you know much better than I do. In French, they express things differently. The range of emotion feels to Anglo-Saxon ears much more immediate, you know, je t'embrasse and j'ai hâte de te voir. All this sort of very warm and heartfelt language, it just made me put Anglo-Saxon language and life a little bit in perspective. I wouldn't have known all of that at six, but I certainly felt the power of language to shape a world.
0: It's so interesting. I actually felt distinctly like I had a different personality. That's why I asked you that question. I was projecting my own experience, I think, because the way that I would communicate was so utterly different in that language to the way you could communicate in English. How long were you there for, Anna? You arrived when
1: you were six and did you stay in France for a long time? We were there for a year at that time and then we came back to Australia. So I had sort of my first conscious experience of Australia at about seven I guess then we went back again when I was 10 for most of another year and I was at the same school with the same friends and sort of took up where I'd left off and then when I was 12 and 13 my brother and I were sent back as unaccompanied minors on the airplane to friends for holidays for the summer so to sort of consolidate that French. but just on the sort of magic curtain thing what you're saying about your personality is so interesting because I learned German later as a teenager and then at the university as a young adult and in German your personality is different again in a sense because the rhythms of conversation are different because in German obviously the verb only at the end of the sentence comes you know so Nobody can interrupt you because you don't actually know (laughs) what they're saying until you've expressed the entire thought right to the end. So it means that there's this very lovely attention that needs to be held in a conversation in a way that in Australia we back ideas back and forth and interrupt much more readily, I think. Could you tell us a little bit
0: about your relationship with Germany, how it started and the language of German?
1: Yes. So having had this experience of France, which I absolutely loved and which put Australia in some kind of perspective for me as a kid growing up as well, my whole family was francophone really. And at school, German was what was offered. And I had a fantastic German teacher and I really loved the language. I loved that you could make whole new words out of just sort of Lego sticking other words together and making these great long words, often for psychological concepts. I mean, we know Schadenfreude and Zeitgeist and things like that. But that just makes little tiny explosions in your mind that you can have a word to express something that doesn't exist in English just by sticking together two words in German. And all of German literature is so wonderful and fantastic. And I really love that. But I think part of it was a kind of wanting to have a language that no one else in my family had. And so I I persisted with it right through university, actually. Who were some of the writers and who are some of the writers who you really loved, German writers? At school in the 80s, we studied German in a split way, much as the country was split. So we would study Goethe and Schiller. Goethe is, of course, the most wonderful, glorious, gorgeous, immediate emotional, clever writer, just absolutely fantastic. But then more recent works, we were studying East German and West German literature split, like the country is split. That was fascinating to me, the idea that there was this whole place where literature was being produced in circumstances that didn't really allow for it. Who were you reading from East Germany? So we were reading Krista Wolf. We were reading Heine Müller, the playwright. We were reading... Monica Maron, say, about environmental degradation. Some of these books were published in the East and available in the West, and some of them had been smuggled out and would be published in the West. We were reading Bertolt Brecht. So Brecht was writing before and after the war, so before and after the split of Germany. And his play Mother Courage is one of the best plays of the 20th century. Then, you know, he goes back and he lives in East Germany. All of that politics, what can be said in what circumstances and how you have to learn to read between the lines in a dictatorship like East Germany, but also in general, we all have to learn how to read between the lines because some things can be expressed really clearly and some things can't. And that's sometimes a matter of politics and sometimes just a matter of, say, for for me, when I'm writing, I know that I'm writing something and I think I know what I'm saying, but I'm also saying other things that the reader will read into it between the lines or because of their own history or because of their own imagination. So that whole act of writer-reader relationship was made live, if you like, for me as an adolescent by, it's a psychological issue and a literary issue, but it was made very live also by the politics of East Germany where things were being said that couldn't be said directly. So it was like a a mystery or a puzzle in language and in literature and in art. And I was completely fascinated. I still am, as you can hear, completely fascinated by that. Going back to
0: Land it was now published in a long time ago. I cannot believe that it was 2002 that it was first published. I vividly remember when it came out and it was in all of the bookshops. And it really um, felt groundbreaking at the time not just in what it was revealing but also in terms of its style it felt to me like a major step for the popularity of creative nonfiction is that your memory of it when it first came out that there was that reaction
1: that's a nice thing to say i think i was when it came out i had a 6 week old baby and um <laughs> when i look back 18 years because she's 18. They're both 18, both these babies. I think that's probably right to say, but you're asking me about a, a sort of question from the readership when I was so much in the trenches of the writership that I can't really tell. But I do think um, I'm often asked, you know, who I was reading when I was growing up in order to write that. And I I read a lot of Bruce Chapman, uh, who I really loved, whose relationship with the truth is more slippery than mine, which is, I owed it to the people in Stasieland to be very, very truthful to what they were saying, both the resistors and the former Stasi men, but Chapman I absolutely loved for his way of just ignoring genre distinctions and writing texts that were as beautiful as you could possibly make them, and as powerful and as evocative as you could possibly make them and for him, I think the truth of it mattered less, but he said a lot of them were nonfiction and that gave them this sort of magic or cachet to me and I loved them. And then I read a lot of Richard Kapuscinski and I read a lot of Timothy Garton Ash actually in that my parents had always the New Yorker New York Review in the house. So I grew up reading Timothy Garton Ash reporting from behind the Iron Curtain and then a lot of Richard Ford and a lot of you know Ray Carver and a lot of modern American fiction. And I think that those elements – all of which, bizarrely now that I mention them, are men. That's how I came into my consciousness as a writer, was by reading those, what I thought to be extremely beautifully written, both fiction and non-fiction texts. But I think the thing about Stasi Land is that it's a very intimate voice and I think that was the difference. I don't think that those voices are as intimate, as sort of written on the body. So the role of the narrator in Stasi Land I'm saying this as if I knew what I was doing at the time. I was just doing it. But the role of that narrator is to observe everybody as closely and open-heartedly and intelligently as possible and then also to be this sort of emotional Geiger counter, the emotional response. It has to be written in there as well because that seemed to me the most honest thing to do and it seemed to me to create a space for the reader to be there as well, either with me or somewhere in that room which contained that range of emotional response. And I think that that is probably a feminised thing to do and I think that's probably why it felt new, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Can you give a little bit of background and tell us a little bit about Stasiland for the people who haven't
1: read it? Sure. So I, I had exchanges in Austria actually as a teenager. And then I had a German government DAAD scholarship as an undergraduate when I was doing German and literature and law in Melbourne. And I went to Berlin. At that time, the wall was up and I went to the Free University in West Berlin and in 1988 to eighty eight, And I was 20 and I was studying Germanistics, so German literature and film studies and art. And at that time, utterly accidentally, I fell in with a group of exiled East German writers and painters. And they were mostly men and they had been kicked out, literally sort of piffed over the wall from East Berlin to West Berlin, so a matter of a couple of hundred metres, into this other Western world for writing or painting that the state didn't like, that the dictatorship didn't like.
0: They sound like wonderful people to fall in with, Anna.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was um yeah, so I was a lot, lot younger. We we would be, you know, having a coffee or a meal in Kreuzberg at a restaurant in the street, you know, and a few hundred meters away there was at the end of the street there'd be this massive monstrous wall. And behind that wall were my friends' past, their past careers, their families, sometimes kids, and they couldn't get to them. And it was like experiencing sort of geopolitics in someone's life and in their family and in their heart. And I think that just sort of set me off. And when the wall came down not that long afterwards, I really wanted to explore what kind of place had kicked out it's best and brightest, I felt. Stasi itself was written later than that time in Germany. I went back after the wall fell, and I had another couple of different fellowships that you can kind of put together. And then I was working as an international lawyer for the Australian government, a job that really was absolutely wonderful, negotiating treaties for Australia and giving constitutional law advice to the federal government. And it was a kind of dream job and working with diplomats and possibly going into DFAT and doing all this stuff. And then I just realized that I was working with people who to whom this was all absolutely real, but and I loved them and I admired them. But at the same time, I was sort of taking notes. And I just thought, I can't use my real, this is obviously not real to me it was like the moment where I'd been avoiding since I was six years old where you think really I'm a writer I've got to go and do it I can't everything else will feel false to me it will feel like material unless I'm just honest with myself and go and write this book so I left I left that job I left that career I left Australia I left my boyfriend was that hard to do Anna or did it feel quite liberating so yeah it was a lot of leaving going on and I feel like when you're doing sort of extreme things you don't really look you don't look down you just do it and not unthinkingly but you have to kind of squeeze your eyes shut and just do it and I think there was a lot of that going on and I went to Berlin and I got this kind of really decrepit flat and I started looking for the stories in Stasi land so I I didn't know what I was going to write I didn't I thought it might be a novel I didn't know whether I would be able to do it and I started off and I found Miriam's story so that was the sort of anchor story of the book I was interested in stories by people who looked to all intents and purposes like so-called ordinary people, you and me and everybody else, but who had actually found inside themselves the most extraordinary courage to stand up to this regime and refuse to betray their friends and family because the regime functioned by everybody spying on everyone else and these were people who just said, I'm not going to do it. And then I was looking at how they found that courage, and what the price was they paid for it. And then I thought, well, I need to go and talk to Stasi men as well. They were all men, and so I did. That, that's the book. It's very significant. I thought I was writing about the past, but I have to say, I think that that impulse for power to have all information and all knowledge and all surveillance is very real and we see it in not just governments and spy services now but much more s- corporatized in the private sector with, of course, the behemoths of um, this information age and I feel frightened about what they could do.
0: And we're choosing to allow our own surveillance, all of us very proactively encouraging it in our social media.
1: Obama said back when um, a few years ago when I was living in the States, he said about the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks and so on, people say, well, I've got nothing to hide. They used to say this in East Germany as well. I've got nothing to hide. I don't care what they know about me. But you don't know how people can use even the most apparently innocuous things about you to misrepresent you. And Obama said never before. It has never ended well when so much information has been held in so few hands. And I just think he's right.
0: Anna, just getting back to Land and what has happened since, did you stay in touch with those people who were in Land? What happened in the years
1: following the 18 years since the book came out? I sent the chapters on everybody to them. They were in English. I then had continuing contact with Miriam and with Frau Paul, who's now died, and a bit with Klaus, who's also now died. Then more recently, as you mentioned last year, because it was the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, There was a special edition coming out in Germany, a kind of anniversary edition of the book, and they said, would you like to write an afterword to it? And the Folio Society in London had brought out a folio edition in 2016, where they had included original photographs of mine of like really pretty awful snaps, but with the sole virtue of kind of Originality where they were of the Stasi men or the places or my flat or me or my writing desk and so on. And they'd brought out this really beautiful bright yellow folio edition. And I'd written a little author's note to that. So when the opportunity came up last year to write a much more detailed piece, sort of on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the war, looking at where is Germany now? Where are the people in my book now? What has happened in those 30 years? Have they found justice? Have the Stasi men had their comeuppance? What is the situation? How has democracy in Germany dealt with this dictatorship in its past? So I really, um, I spent a few months going into that last year, I have to say, and this piece then came out in the monthly in English. And it's in the German edition. It's actually in the back of the German edition, that piece. It is, it is. It had to be legaled a couple of times and, you know, it's still a very tricky subject, mainly in the most particular instances In general, the Stasi men have done much better than the former political activists and political prisoners who are reduced to the welfare system. They get a little bonus calculated on... So if you were a demonstrator for democracy and you got put into prison and then you were tortured or psychologically kind of abused, you can get a little bit of extra money calculated per month of prison. But the Stasi men who all had these kind of slightly cornflake packets law degrees from their own universities, and but they had solid work histories and status. After the fall of the war, they brought this action in the constitutional court in Germany to say, we deserve higher pensions than anybody else in East Germany because we have these long work histories in our own system, of course. <laughs> and weirdly enough, that was granted. I think that is extraordinary that they have still so much power that's carried throughout all of these years. It does seem like the good guys don't always win or like democracy doesn't really value the people who fought for it. And we tend to think when the Berlin Wall fell fantastic, all open, democracy is a winner all around the world. But as we know now, that was temporary. (laughs) And the victories of democracy and open kind of markets and things don't seem so secure, particularly now, less and less so. So it's very interesting to look at how how power
0: works like that. And interestingly, in hindsight, Anna, you could see that it was also potentially because of shame. It made people uncomfortable in general who had gone along with the regime.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Shame and also fear, which I noticed in my own book launch, obviously my own – I was never in fear or in danger, so this is kind of a tiny, tiny example – unlike those really brave people in the book. But when the book was being launched in, again, the Runde Ecke at the Leipzig Book Fair in uh, 2004 in Germany, I looked onto the stage. I tell this story in this afterward and in the monthly piece. I looked onto the stage as I was being introduced and my publisher was absolutely terrified. She was this West German woman. I could see her knees knocking together under the lectern. And I thought, why is she so terrified? This is not a joyous book launch that I was expecting. And then she introduced me and I went up to the lectern and I looked down and there was this row of ex-stasi or ex-party men. So there's middle-aged men, a lot of beige, a lot of brill cream and absolute fury looking at me. And I thought, right, this is what's happening here. And as I started to read, so I opened up Stasi-Land, started to read in German, of course, they take out notebooks and then they start to scratch these notes into them about what I'm saying and look at daggers at me. I was about three months pregnant. Nobody knew that then. But I could sort of tell that even though that made me very calm, it also, as soon as I started doing that, I just thought, something kind of steely happened and I couldn't be afraid. And I just thought, you guys are getting some kind of pleasure out of frightening me and I don't want to give you any more pleasure. You had your time to do that to people. And also, what are you going to do with your notes? I've got my notes on you. I'm going to read to you what you did. So then I read this part out and at the end of the session, it's meant to be a book launch. It's opened up for questions and no one in the whole auditorium of this former secret policeman's ballroom, you know, no one says anything. And then these men get up really noisily and stomp out. And at that point, a woman got up at the back and she said, why does it take an outsider to tell these stories? My son was arrested. He was held in prison. Why is it that no one talks about it here? And I just thought, you know what, I think your answer just left the room. Those scary men who are walking around everywhere, who everybody knows, they know more about everybody else because they were spying on them. And other people know that that was so-and-so's interrogator, or that was the guard on the door, or that was so an ecstasy man. So I think that was the atmosphere in which the book was released in Germany. and So it's had a very interesting history since then.
0: As you say, it just seems like there's such a kind of lack of justice, which is... Maybe it's from too much films and television that we have that expectation that things, you know, when something terrible happens, there will be justice. But when there's not, it's hard to fathom, it's hard to comprehend.
1: That's exactly right. I think that's very acute on so many levels. There was a very understandable impulse, and this happens in many places where there's been political upheaval and injustice, so you think South Africa or Rwanda, many other places, but the East German one was what was interesting to me. There's this big impulse after, say, so the wall comes down. Initially, people think, like in Romania, when the Ceausescu regime ended, you know, there was blood in the streets and they did hang people from lampposts and so on. And there's this fear that the Stasi felt frightened that they would be attacked or lynched and so on. But there's a much more general sense also from the government that We need to knit East and West Germany back together again. We need to all, quote unquote, get along. We need to not be angry with one another. We have to get along and go forward. That's true. But to my way of thinking, the only way you can do that is with justice. So if you have essentially kind of perpetrators or the powerful saying to people who were their former victims or political prisoners, why can't you just get along get over it, let's keep going, go forward. It's not up to the formerly powerful ever to say that. This applies also to race politics and so on, which is why we're listening so closely now. It's only ever up to the victim to say when it is time to get along and go forward, you know, when justice has been done. And I think that's where literature and sorts of narrative storytelling sit now, not to provide pat, fanciful, fictional Endings where the good guy wins and the bad guys get their comeuppance. That's not useful. What's useful is to really show what went on. And there's a kind of, it's not enough, but it's a kind of justice to make these stories seen, to make it impossible to sweep them under the carpet, which is certainly what was happening
0: because again it's about the different versions of history that are told that's a kind of theme that keeps coming up today even with this discussion about statues and who tells history and who tells the story and what angle it's coming from but i guess all we can do is hope that people are constantly trying to get to the truth or the different versions of the truth
1: that's so true you know i'm constantly fascinated by all the things that we don't see or we don't notice and because we don't have all the points of view. The issue with the statues is so interesting. None of us really want to be in a world where everybody is reduced to their worst deeds, but we all want to be in a world where we can see history from as many possible angles as there can be. I don't really want to walk past a statue honouring somebody who might have done some great stuff but was also a murderer or a slave trader or something without knowing it. So I'm kind of, it feels like progress, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like some kind of justice.
0: Now, Anna, moving on to All That I Am, can you tell me how you moved to fiction after? Because I know that Stasi-Land initially had started as fiction and then ended up being non fiction. And then All That I Am is also based in truth, in
1: history. Sure. So I did want to write. You know, I just, having my sort of silly six-year-old dream, I guess, somewhere buried inside, I thought that, of course, I would write a novel as my first book. And I started doing that with a version of Miriam's story back before I wrote Stasi And it was so awful in its own right. I didn't get very far with it. One of the reasons why it was awful was because I couldn't get the voice right, the point of view right. And the reason for that was it wasn't mine. It wasn't my story to tell. And it just wasn't right to use somebody else's story to make fiction. Well, I wasn't able to do that anyway, in that world in Germany where in Berlin, in the street, former victims could be walking down the street to the cafe followed by their former interrogator and no one was writing about it and no one was saying it and I thought this is an environment where these stories really have to be told in non-fiction to be worth something, to be really powerful. This has to be true. So that sort of dictated that. With all that I am, I had this friend who was 60 years older than me. She was born in 1906. I'm born in sixty six. Apparently both of those years in the Chinese calendar, I'm told by Chinese relative, are the years of the fire horse. So it only happens twice a century. And those are the years in which girls born in those years are difficult and unmarriageable. (laughs) So so anyway, I I really loved Ruth. Her name was Ruth Blatt. And she had been in Melbourne, my German teacher. And she was this really wonderful woman. So I was kind of 19 and she was in her late 60s and I met her after I finished school and she had been in this little left-wing anti-Hitler resistance group resistance to Hitler in the late 20s and 30s in Germany and then she'd had to flee to London as soon as Hitler came to power she was on this blacklist and had to go not because she was Jewish which she was but because she was left-wing and I was interested as I started um I did a radio program with her, actually, and I started making that after the Stasi-Land came out for something to do just before my baby was born. And then I looked more into her story, and I she died uh, not long after that, and I looked more into her story, and I found that I thought, who was she with in London? She was talking about these other exiles in London from Hitler. Who were they? What were they doing? And then I came across the story of Dora Fabian and Matilda Vaughan, who were members of this tiny independent Labour Party, Socialist Workers' Party, they were called in London. And two of them had been killed in very mysterious circumstances. So they were found dead in the locked room of a bedroom in a locked flat in Bloomsbury in 1935. And the two women flatmates and the coronial inquest found that they had committed suicide somehow together, quote, by reason of unsound mind due to romantic disappointment. And I just thought, that is completely mad. These women were political activists, and one of them was a member of parliament, and the other was a feminist, firebrand, anti-Hitler activist. That couldn't have happened. So I started to write about that. And because everybody, well, first of all, I started to research it. I was on an absolute high for about a year. I went to London and took my whole family and two little kids at that point to London, and Researched it. Funnily enough, the summer of 2006 is when I started doing that. And that was when, if you remember Litvinenko, the Russian, you might not remember a long time ago, there was a Russian dissident former spy who was poisoned with a bizarre radioactive isotope in his Japanese tea in London and took three weeks to die. That was happening while I was researching this in London at the beginning. And um, I thought, my God, Putin has stolen my plot. You know, there's this, <laughs> there are these activists in exile in London and He's knocking them off. As we know, there have been many more Russians killed in, in London now. But I was interested in the story of these very brave anti-Hitler activists, and because they were all dead, I needed to bring them back to life, and that meant that this could be a novel. And so that's what I did. But it's tied very closely. This is only kind of a bet with myself in some bizarre kind of hangover from my being a legally trained. All the evidence, really, that I found in this 18 months of research in three different countries about what happened to these people and what they were doing and what Hitler was doing at the time to send out people to kill people overseas, all of that could have been taken into account in the coronial inquest and wasn't. So it's a novel, it utterly reads as a novel, but in the bag. I've got all of these sort of evidentiary points, I think vaguely in the hope that somebody who's a properly trained investigative journalist will one day come along and and put it together in a non-fiction way. How
0: did you decide about that tightrope treading the line between fiction and the truth and how closely you went to the truth? Was that difficult at times or did it come
1: naturally and easily? It was pretty easy, not that I generally say things are easy for me. But I got the voice of Ruth, old Ruth. So Ruth is narrating this from her life in Bondi Junction in Sydney as an old woman. And her voice is not really the voice of my friend Ruth, who was kind of more optimistic and sweeter in a way than the Ruth in the book is a bit more caustic and complicated because she's been infected by... I suppose. But the other voice is the voice of Ernst Toller, who was a really wonderful revolutionary and playwright, very glamorous, intelligent, also manic depressive, major figure in literary figure. And he was in exile in London as well. And he was part of this party. And he was lovers with my main character, Dora Fabian. And His voice came pretty early as well. I think I really started writing him and once I knew that I had him from the inside, you know, he's a stuck writer. (laughs) It wasn't that hard. Once I knew I had him, I had this kind of inside running on what it might have felt like to be in London in exile.
0: This book you had multiple editors for. How was that experience?
1: Um, Yes, so the book was sold... um, in a kind of auction at the Frankfurt Book Fair. And so it went into multiple English-speaking territories at the same time. And that meant that there was an American editor, a British editor, an Australian editor all involved. And my Australian editor very brilliant ben ball mentioned these other wonderful australian writers and said oh well usually you know what i can do for you is to get in all the other editors suggestions and then i just incorporate them into a document and just give you one set of stuff to look at because they might overlap or whatever and i love being edited i maybe it's just a sign of how how lonely I am or how how needy of attention on my text. But I really love that process of working with someone. It's such a sort of a kind of thrill to have somebody give your work that close attention. So I wanted to hear what the British editor had to say and the American editor had to say and Ben had to say. In the end, there were not so many editorial interventions from US and the UK. So I worked mostly with Ben and we went back and forward. But it was a complex and six-month-long process. The British editor did have a couple of sort of genius strokes, one of which was the opening line of the book that a lot of people have remarked on is, when Hitler came to power, I was in the bath. And that was, that's Ruth talking. It's a beautiful first line. (laughs) It works because it says, I mean, I didn't want to mention Hitler in this at all. I didn't want to write some kind of anti-Nazi novel, but clearly that's what it was. And in the end, I had to just call a Hitler a Hitler, if you like. (laughs) But it meant that you had this sense of immediate kind of intimacy in the body of things that were going to be felt and vulnerability and kind of sexiness that I wanted the book to have at the same time as this is clearly a political book and that's all concentrated in the bath that came at about the 30 or 40 page mark actually and the British editor said that's your opening line you know stick that at fabulous stick that yeah so that was that was fantastic and then sort of reorganized that so that's yeah that's how that worked.
0: Now, the next book you have published is The Girl with the Dogs, which is a novella and it's very different and it came to life in a very different way as well. Can you just give us a brief overview of how that happened?
1: Sure. I was in the States and I was living there with my family in New York City for a few years and I got this request from Australia, would I write a short story for the Paspalee pearl and jewelry company and they would use that then in an advertising campaign I would have total artistic freedom and they offered me a lot of money and I thought wow that's amazing and it was such a lot of money that I thought this just doesn't feel very correct for some reason so I didn't tell my agent and I didn't tell my husband and I got back to them and said thank you very much That's an amazing offer. This is such a lot of money. What I think you should really do is set up a short story prize in Australia because that's the kind of funding that could do it. And then you get lots of short stories, you get lots of publicity. It's a fantastic thing for the sort of ecology of storytelling in Australia. And then you can pick the best one and use that in your campaign and, and that's all fantastic. And then I press send and I kind of shuddered because, you know, it's just terrible to not sort of say yes to the dress, you know, say yes to the money <laughs> and, um, and didn't tell anybody. And then three weeks went past and I thought, well, I you know, dodged a bullet there and no one knew any better and then I got another email from them. And that said, through this advertising company, thank you very much, that's a really good idea. But actually we just want a story from you. Uh, what's it going to take? And, you know, was it like more money and a trip to Australia and pearls yeah. and what do, what do you want? And then I thought, wow, these, these people. And so I said yes. And it was really such a lovely, lovely experience because... What was
0: lovely about the experience?
1: Ah, uh, usually when you're writing, you're writing kind of into the dark. You're writing about things that you can't yet see to try and make them visible. I mean, that's the sort of basic thing that, that I feel like I'm doing and it's exploratory and you don't really know whether it's going to be any good and whether anyone will want it. I mean, you know, now at this stage in my life, people probably will want it, but I still don't know whether it's going to be any good or anything. This just felt like we want whatever you do. We don't care what it is. And we're going to pay you money, which, which is unusual, very unusual and very, very lovely. How did you happen upon a novella connected to the original Chekhov short story? Well, I have to say novella, it is sold as a novella because it's sold as a little book that you can buy, not very expensively in the bookshops. but I think that's slightly grand for what it is. It's really a short story. And when they said to me, we'd like a short story from you, I said, okay. And I thought, that's a very open brief. And often in creative work, my husband does creative work too and he's very acute about it. You need parameters. The clearer and closer and more defined the task is, the easier it is to be creative in it.
0: Which is what the ulipo say, of course. That's a very nice French segue as well, that if you have kind of those parameters or clear kind of guidelines um, to work within, your imagination soars. Who says that? That's great. The Ulipo, the French literary movement, the Ulipo. Ah. Their whole idea is, um, you know, for example, there'll be a whole novel written without the letter E, kind of strange things like that that they have. They have. I mean, that's... Perec stuff, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was one of them.
1: I tend to look really closely at the B. So they said short story and I thought to myself, okay, that's really too broad. So I thought short story, what does that mean to me? And Nabokov said that the best short story ever published was Chekhov's The Lady with the Dog. And I went and reread that, and it is the most extraordinary and wonderful story. And I was obviously sort of intimidated and inspired in equal measure, and I just thought this story is, because it's Russian, of course it's about someone called Anna, and it's about a woman as a young woman who has an affair with an older man in a seaside resort and the point of view shifts in it are very interesting and they shift around. But essentially, Gurov, the older man, comes to realise that what he thinks is a passing fling because he's had so many other passing flings actually isn't and he's getting old and this is going to change his life and this is really important. And I thought, how would she feel, this younger woman, when she's his age, so she's in middle age, in close to 40, and she looks back on this affair How does she think about it? And I thought in the modern day and age, if you look back on affairs that you had or relationships or loves that you had when you were younger, you don't just look back and think about them. You can just click, click and bring them right up on Facebook and have a look at them. And I thought how... How does that feel and how does that play in the age of this kind of technology? So I just thought that's some parameters for me. An affair, looking back on an affair, how do you feel about it? Do you bring that back into your present tense psychologically? Do you actually go and hunt down this person and just sort of talk to them? What does that do to the regular, normal, everyday life that you have built is it destructive? Ha- what then happens? And I was at a really amazing write- little tiny writers festival with Don DeLillo and Rachel Kushner and me. We were the only three guests. Is that the in- one on the Italian island? It- yes, that's in Capri. Yeah. And <laughs> it was so amazing. And one of- I've always wanted to go there. Oh my gosh, it was just absolutely such a privilege. And one of my New York friends was there and she was looking at her phone, and this was the earlier, so this 2014, and she was looking at her phone and she had her grown-up children on an app called Life360. And I was so shocked that she was tracking her children, her grown-up children on this app it, who were in America and they were traveling around and stuff and she wanted to know where they were. And she said, oh no, you know, they have agreed to this and stuff. And I got sort of fascinated by this tracking technology. So that then made its way into the story as well. So I set up these parameters and then I just watched where it went and wrote the story.
0: That leads really nicely to what you might be working on now. Are you able to talk about what you have been working on in these recent years?
1: Yes so I've been working on a range of things and one of the ones sort of the main one is a book which is a It's a kind of um, feminist book. It's partly a biography of somebody else's marriage (laughs) and how that seems to me to have worked. And then it's My Husband's Terrified, partly kind of autobiographical, although not too much. And it's really about what it is to be a wife. So it is kind of an exercise in, well, it's a narrative nonfiction thing, but it's an exercise in making visible all the sorts of work that women do that are not necessarily visible in normal life and that are seen as just part of caring, for instance, or part of normal life or part of apparently just division of labor in the home. And I'm very curious about making all of those things really, really visible because I think that the division of labor in the home is massively unequal and I think that once you make those things really visible they can be valued and once they're valued they can be shared. It sounds like an extraordinary topic to explore, a really important topic
0: to explore. How has the writing process been going? Have you been enjoying
1: it? Is it difficult? What is the process like for you Anna? Each of my books has had a kind of unusual not the girl with the dogs which is a much more traditional story but Stasi and All That I Am have been, for me, exercises in finding a form that best fits or, not to be too grandiose about it, kind of does justice to the material. So I touched on earlier why Stasiland had to be nonfiction. It then also, in order to string together these stories of resistance and stories of collaboration, as the city of Berlin was knitting itself back together, I needed to put a narrator in there who was me, obviously, because it's nonfiction. So all of those decisions about fiction, nonfiction, a narrator, if it's nonfiction, it has to be me, how much of me is going to be in there and so on, defined what that book was. All That I Am has this relationship to truth as well. It reads like a novel, but it's from two different perspectives because both of them had different lights to shed on Dora, basically, and then it has these footnotes in the back. So that was a, a nonfiction kind of a, a sort of exercise in finding new form in a way, and so was the novel. And this is, again, a nonfiction book, but it has to find its own form. And so it's this um, mix, which I'm finding quite hard to do, but I think is working at this mix between looking at a marriage from long ago and seeing how much or how little Marriages now seem to have changed. So it's a a mixture of perspectives, hoping that the one illuminates the other. But it has been because you're writing away, you're writing at the same time as you're finding the form in which that writing is going to sit, if that makes any sense. I think if you're a sensible person and you write genre fiction, you can write really, really great stuff, but you know how it has to go and at what point you have to hit. This point this you know your plot a plot b and where they meet and the rising action these things are slightly more exploratory and different and they always run the risk of kind of falling into themselves like a really bad meringue but i think it's okay We have previously spoken, not in this conversation,
0: but previously we spoke about the difficulty of talking about a new book when you're in the process of writing about it. And so I don't want to ask you any further questions about it because I know you are in that process. And I think, can you tell us a little bit about not wanting to define it so much in this process at this stage?
1: Yeah, I think that changes. I mean, some people say writers sort of don't talk about what they're doing because it's somehow spooky. That's an interesting thing to say. I think it can be unpacked a little bit, which I'll do. The other reason people don't talk about it is because they think, like particularly in nonfiction, if you're working on something, quite often someone else is working on it at the same time and that's just serendipity or how things go that, you know, there'll be a slew of books published about, I don't know, Facebook or privacy or some historical event or something. I feel like this might be what people say when they're talking about it being spooky. I don't feel spooked about talking about my work. I'm really happy to talk about it. I'm much happier to talk about it when it exists because then it's like an actual thing and people can totally agree or disagree on what it is, but it exists. When it's coming into existence, if I said to you, I'm writing a story about this person this and that and the other thing happens to them and then this and that and the other thing when I go to really dig down into that person who might be my main character I find that actually it's unlikely that they would do x or y or z and to force them to do it is going to make the book not no longer make psychological sense because I'm interested in exploring something about that person that makes them who they are and they just wouldn't do that so at the most basic level You know, if character is destiny, you are preempting where your imagination is going to take you by telling people, I'm writing a story about X, Y, and Z, when actually the story that you really, really want to be writing, that you're avoiding something else so if you talk about it a lot it kind of puts you into this mindset where you've said you're going to write this thing you feel like you're going to write this thing but actually deep down what your unconscious needs to do is to tell a different story but it makes you into a liar because you've told all on sundry that you're writing about x when actually all the time you've been avoiding writing about y which is really the thing that is driving your motor if that makes any sense it does Anna, what are you reading as you're writing this new book? At the moment, I'm reading James Baldwin. In the past, read some of his essays. I'm reading with great attention to the way people write about race. He's such an extraordinary and wonderful writer, and I've never read If Beale Street Could Talk, so that's his novel, uh, one of, and that's what I'm reading at the moment, and also his essays. And that is an exercise in He's such a beautiful, beautiful writer, but he's also doing this analogous thing where he's making visible to white people in a white world what it's like to live as a black man in this incredible prose. But he's saying, you guys can't see this. You don't feel it and you've got no idea what it's like to live like this. And he has to manage all of that revelation and all of the sort of sadness and anger from being unseen and not to say nothing, have discriminated against and so on, and marshal all of that into an energy that doesn't overwhelm or wreck the prose or the sentiment. And he's so incredible at it. So, And I'm reading that obviously in my mind with saying this is what women and wives do. I'm not drawing any immediate parallel with the race question, but that's feeding me at the moment. I'm really, really enjoying it.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation. It's really taken us in all different directions, and it's been absolutely fascinating to hear about your books looking back in hindsight. So, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much.